This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, June 16th, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't know where that is, if you divide your Bible in half, that's probably the book of Psalms, and then turn to the right two books and you're there. We have been going through this book for some time, and I'm excited to return to it and finish it up here in the next few weeks. This is a book of wisdom. As I said, it's titled Ecclesiastes, and that is a Hebrew word that speaks to the assembly of God's people who are gathered to worship. That's probably why or why we can understand the author describes himself as the preacher. And perhaps that's why we should understand or review this book sort of like a sermon. It's not merely informing us, but it's actually calling us to respond to what God is saying or revealing about the world or Himself or even our own hearts. So we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 13 through chapter 10, verse 7 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, says this, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered this poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. And so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks in a road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun as it were an error proceeding from the ruler, folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in the low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. This is God's Word. Now, if you haven't spent any time with us yet, uh, or if you've never read Ecclesiastes, then you would um, maybe be surprised because a lot of the things we find in Ecclesiastes from the preacher, we don't expect to come from a preacher's mouth. Without doubt, this is a unique book in the Bible. It's a difficult book. It's a dark book. It's a book that fo focuses on the exceptions and not the rules in the search for meaning in life. This makes it some argue, a really cynical book, but I think it's better understood perhaps as a refreshingly honest book about life. At one point, Solomon even declares something I dare say none of us have ever said, I'm laying the sarcasm on really thick, 
I hate life, he says. You go, oh, I'm not sure preachers are supposed to say that. Solomon's experiment results in him hating life. And while Solomon doesn't want us to have to go there to get to that place, in many ways, he leads us there, but he doesn't want us to remain in that place. Yes, he hates life, but he doesn't hate God. On the contrary, he calls people to fear God and to find joy in all that God has given as opposed to what He is not. So as he in this book reflects on this grand experiment he had kind of in life, he intends for the real disillusionment that he experiences and the real dissatisfaction that he finds and the destruction and the death that he sees around him, he wants it to point us back to the beginning. To Eden. To remind ourselves that it looks broken because at one point it wasn't. It feels destroyed because at one point it wasn't. And one day it will be restored again. So he's reminding us that we live in this in-between place. And if you look at the bookends of Ecclesiastes, it begins with everything is empty and ends with fear God in everything. So, his experiment, by way of reminder, was initiated because he sensed, as everyone does, an emptiness in their life. An emptiness in their soul. And so, Solomon said, maybe I can fill that emptiness. Maybe I can fix that emptiness with everything under the sun, which basically is a way of saying, I'm going to take everything in creation and see if I can stuff it in that hole that I find in my soul and see if it satisfies. And so, hoping to fill his soul, he did what everyone actually does at some point in their life for a long time, for a short time. He filled his life with every form of pleasure with every kind of food and drink and activity and achievement and work and power and money and knowledge, even spirituality, like everything. Let's just shove it in and see if it fits and see if it fits. He became great in every sense of the word. And in the eyes of the world, like that guy has it all. And he did by the measurement of the world. He'd summited every possible mountain imaginable. We all have that mountain, right? That, that thing we go, if I could only get this. And it's not always like you know, great power, great wealth. Sometimes it's great family. The perfect family. The perfect job. He had it all. He succeeded in building what is probably best described as a paradise full of every single good thing possible without God. And what was Eden? Paradise. With every good thing possible with God. And so he tried and succeeded in doing it without God. And at the end of his life, with all the wisdom this man had, he concluded that all good things in life are not good enough 
without God. So then beginning in chapter 7, he begins to switch his tone, right? The first seven chapters were kind of like, I tried this, and I tried this, and I tried this, and I tried this. And so he, he shifts in focus, focusing from the warning, like, don't seek meaning in these things. Where you're not at, the things you don't have. There's no meaning in more, whatever your more is. And he shifts and begins to instruct us how to find meaning where we're actually at. Right now. No additions. No subtractions. And he teaches that yes, wisdom, this idea of wisdom, is a limited thing. It's still a frail, sin-stained thing. But he also teaches us that it's actually a good thing. That, that something with wisdom, can your life can result in a better life than the fool who doesn't use wisdom. That even though the same fate comes to everyone, that death comes to us all, that those who fear the Lord are able to enjoy their brief life with this commitment to wisdom. So Solomon has much to say about wisdom and he writes also many of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. Instructions that often begin of a father speaking to his son. Which is appropriate for today. In Proverbs chapter 4, speaking to his sons, he says, get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly. She will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. Get a lot of wisdom. Out of all the things you could tell your sons and your daughters. See, in our world today, we got a lot of a lot. We have a lot of stuff. A lot of information. A lot of options. A lot of different feelings. A lot of different opinions. A lot of different kinds of experiences. But because we don't have a lot of wisdom. It seems as if we have a world full of people, believers and non, who are fools. Who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. People are fickle. They get tossed around because we have so much stuff, information, opinions, things, but there's no wisdom to center us to help us understand what is actually true. So I want to cover some basic questions that I think come out of this text. And one is just what is wisdom? And what is it not? But I think most importantly, as Solomon says here, how do we get it? How do I become wise if that is the most important thing? If you look in verse 13, 
Again, reflecting, he tells a little bit of a story. He says, I've seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me. He says in verse 14, there was a little city with few men in it and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Alright, so you think about this. He begins with this example of wisdom. He's really impressed by it, which is noteworthy because Solomon's an impressive guy, but he's perhaps impressed by it for some of the wrong reasons. So he has this little city, and it has few men in it, few leaders in it, and it's a vulnerable little city that gets attacked by this great king seeking to overthrow it and claim it as his own. They build great siege works around this little city, meaning there's a huge military blockade, and the city is on the brink of being conquered. Usually that would be through attrition, so they just wouldn't let anything out and anything in, and they would starve to death and surrender, or they're going to just totally assault the walls and destroy it. So this little city can't defend itself because it has few men, few soldiers, doesn't have any defenses, and really has no chance to survive or win this battle. Apart from a miracle, the city is going to fall. It's weak. It's vulnerable. But unbeknownst to them, they have one hope in the most unexpected secret weapon you could ever imagine which is a poor, wise man. Solomon says it's by wisdom that this powerless figure ends up delivering the city against an impossibly formidable power. And so it's the proof of what he said earlier in the beginning of chapter 9. He says the battle doesn't necessarily belong to the strong. And this is one of those case studies. We're not told exactly what this old man did because that's not the point. If we were told what he did, we might start to be impressed by what he did and go, well, you know, that's kind of, he has kind of a superpower, right? But no, he's just a poor man, but a wise poor man. The emphasis is that he used wisdom, not might. Wisdom, not military strength. Wisdom, not force. More than a mighty intellect or mighty instinct, wisdom is right knowledge applied rightly. And when we talk about wisdom as a believer, we're talking about the wisdom of God's truth applied to the circumstances of life. God's truth applied to the circumstances of life, no matter how difficult, no matter how impossible the odds might be, using God's wisdom and not force or might. And so, Solomon continues because he's impressed. He's like, here's the example of, of wisdom. He says, though the city was rescued, we kind of realize that there's a cost to wisdom. That's risky for the wise, if you will. He says that in verse 15, no one remembered the poor man after he rescued this city. But it says more than that. Verse 16, But I say that wisdom is better than might, 
Though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. So what do we see? The poor man was not remembered. He wasn't memorialized. There weren't statues put up for him. He was completely forgotten. No one remembers his name. And even though wisdom proved to be better than the might of thousands of men perhaps, those whom He saved, as men often are, are fickle. Perhaps for a time they idolized Him, but then eventually that same hero becomes demonized until that same hero is euthanized. Isn't that what happened to Jesus? Yay, Jesus! You're awesome! Dude, I think you have a demon. Now we're going to kill you. Right? The memory of this man not only died. It wasn't just, oh, they forgot who he was. It says that the wisdom he employed was despised. They didn't just go, oh, I don't remember who saved this. Like, no, what a horrible piece of wisdom that is. That wisdom that saved us. You know, one only comes to despise wisdom when they desire a life apart from what is wise. And the Bible says that the path that leads away from wisdom is the path to death. It's the path that seems right in our eyes, but in the end it leads to destruction. Perhaps it took a generation to forget this poor wise man's work. Perhaps it was way quicker. Either way, we can trust that this city, apparently in Solomon's description of it, never sought answers to difficult problems from poor men of insignificance ever again. Even though, guess what? Wisdom was probably quite near to them when they needed it. Solomon writes in verses 17 and 18, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. That wisdom is better than weapons of war. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. You see, this man was a nobody with nothing, and yet by wisdom he protected and defeated a bunch of somebodies with a lot of something. And that was wisdom. But the thing about it is, wisdom is not impressive on the surface. And this is why wisdom is so often overlooked, ignored, or even despised. You think of Christ. Christ Himself, right? Isaiah 53 says He was unimpressive. Isaiah 53 says He was despised. And yet we know that He was perfect wisdom incarnate. If you want to understand how the world receives wisdom, how it perceives wisdom, how did they receive and perceive Christ? Wisdom incarnate. They overlooked. They rejected. They despised. And ultimately they killed. Wisdom doesn't have to do with popularity. Wisdom doesn't have to do with power or prosperity, although Christ Himself would not have been wise in any of those ways. But it's interesting in our culture of celebrity, what tends to be the thing we embrace? I'm always so curious 
impressed in all the bad ways by celebrities that speak out and how people listen to them on any number of topics. Some doofus who's a movie star decides to speak on some topic and be like, oh yes, oh that's true, oh of course. I saw you handle a laser gun in that movie and you seem to know everything about everything. So I will listen to you. You have a million Twitter followers because you sang some ridiculously sappy, romantic, weird song and now you are the authority on who we should vote for. and how we... It's like weird. But we have that celebrity culture. Why? Because they're out there. They're impressive. They're good looking. They're seemingly influential. Like They must be wise. But I will tell you just really simply, and this is what Solomon's going to try, like, true wisdom doesn't always look right. It doesn't always feel right. It doesn't always sound right. It doesn't always tickle the ears. True wisdom, the Lord's wisdom, is foolish to men. And the Lord's most wise are the most foolish looking in the world. Quiet truth, Solomon says, is easily lost in the overwhelming noise of falsehood. Quiet truth. Because there's so much noise going around that's just half-truths and lies. What happened in the Garden of Eden? There was a truth that was spoken. And God didn't set up a PA system to make sure like, don't go near there. Don't go near there. Remember, you're getting too close to the tree, right? He spoke it once, and then who came? Oh, that's not true. The Lord's lying to you. He's holding out on you. He's not trustworthy. It was a competition of counselors. It was a competition between wise, wisdom, and foolishness. Truth and falsehood. So among other things, what do we learn wisdom is? Wisdom is certainly available. It's near to us, but it's often neglected. Wisdom is actually quite quiet and humble. But wisdom is incredibly powerful. We learn that wisdom delivers. It saves, but it is often forgotten and despised. So what is not wisdom then? Whatever's loud... Not necessarily. Whatever is wealthy and influential, not necessarily. I think to begin, we know that wisdom is not likely what we expect or even what we desire in our flesh. The story of this forgotten and despised old... I keep calling him old man. It doesn't actually say old, but I imagine like this old, decrepit, old, poor, wise, like, you better listen to me. So I don't know if I say old. I know it's not there, but just how I envision it. But this reminded me of a story in 1 Kings 12. You don't need to turn there. I'll just summarize the story. But it's interesting. This is a chapter in Scripture that records the death of Solomon, or I think 11 is the death of Solomon, and then his son who comes next, right? So it's interesting connection because of all the Proverbs written to my sons and son. And so the, the history is that his son Rehoboam ascended to the throne, and an assembly of people came to him right after his ascension and 
asked him some things. They basically complained about Solomon. They said, dude, your dad was like super hard on us. Could you like loosen up, lighten up a little bit? And there was some sinister kind of question in that, but it was a question that was posed and Rehoboam listened. He said, well, let me, let me ask my counselors. And so he called in some old men. And the old men said, you know what? Loosen up. Be kind. He didn't like the sound of that. So what did he do? He decides to counsel with his younger buddies who he'd grown up with, the text says. And they say, you know what you should do? Well, these, these old guys told me to be kind. <laughs> no, no. Here's what you do. You need to flex a muscle. You need to show them that you're twice as tough as your dad. You're not just going to whip him with cords. You're going to whip him with scorpions, which I don't even know how you do, but that sounds really like brutal, right? So that's what he does, and it's his undoing. It's his undoing. I would argue he rejected wisdom because he wanted something. And he wanted something so bad, he was willing to sin to get it. And guess what? He did get it. And it ruined his kingdom. Now, if wisdom is the application of God's truth to our circumstances, whatever those circumstances is, then we know that wisdom, true wisdom, God's wisdom, it can't be mixed with sin. It can't have just a little bit of sin in it. No matter how good you feel about your decision, how approving others might be, how effective it even seems to work, if it's sinful, it's not wise. And in time, it will end in the death of something. Solomon wrote it really clearly. He says, one sinner destroys much. And I think you could probably fairly say that one sin destroys much. See Garden of Eden. Right? So beginning in chapter 10, here's how Solomon further explains how this, work, how this works. He says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. I like that verse. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone, I'm a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. And so what is not wisdom? Well, I would argue no matter how much you baptize your desires or decisions, God's wisdom doesn't include sin. Look how much you spiritualize it. If there's sin involved, it's not wise. Wisdom is not just a gut feeling. No, i got a gut feeling. Now, there's nothing wrong with a gut feeling, but I'm not sure how you discern gut feeling of wisdom as opposed to gut feeling of bad burrito from yesterday. Right? i got a gut feeling. i got a gut feeling too. Now what do we do? Because our gut feelings are different. There's a problem with that. Well, my gut feeling is a move of the Spirit. It might be a move of Qdoba. I'm not sure it's actually a move of the Spirit. How do you discern that? Who gets to decide that? 
Wisdom is not reactive. Wisdom is not secretive. Wisdom is not... It works. Wisdom doesn't pretend to smell good while ignoring the dead body in the middle of it. Look at that perfume. There's a dead thing there. It stinks. I don't smell anything. Wickedness stinks. Wickedness and sin stains. Whether it's covered in perfume all around. It's rotting. It's dead. It's yuck. And perhaps most controversially for those who love Disney in our lives, it's not following your hearts. Right? What's wisdom? It's following your like, That's a message that, is, that has been uh, just promoted and abused and while well-intended, it leads you to death. The prophet Jeremiah told us that the heart, above all things, is deceitful. Men who follow their guts, women who follow their guts, are often self-deceived into walking the path of foolishness. Wisdom is not simply right knowledge applied rightly. It is a right heart believing rightly. We must remember, friends, that our problem has never been a lack of information or experience. Our problem has always been sinful hearts that are prone to wander away from God and His wisdom. This is why God describes salvation through the prophet Ezekiel as a heart transplant. Saying in Ezekiel 36, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I'm going to put with you and I'm going to remove the heart of stone. That's bad. And give you a heart of flesh. Not only that, I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'm going to help you obey. Wisdom is not merely following your hearts. Wisdom is following Jesus with all of your heart by the Spirit, not depending upon the flesh. So the question is, I see what wisdom is and what wisdom is not. How do I, how do I get it? How do I become wise? And here's the irony of it all. The irony of the Gospel is that we need to actually look for wisdom among the fools. Ecclesiastes 10.5 says this, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler, that folly, foolishness, is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. The rich. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So welcome to the confusion of Ecclesiastes, right? You read there, you're like, of course. I agree, Solomon. Right? Like, and I think of nothing else, you go, man, the world is backwards. The world seems upside down. The world seems to be broken because things, as he's describing, shouldn't be the way they are. He observes that wisdom isn't found in the places you think that you would find it. In fact, he argues that 
Foolishness is found in the high places. The places of authority, the places of influence, the, the places of education. The places where you think, man, they got it all figured out. That's where wisdom is. You're like, yeah, actually, there's a ton of foolishness in all those places. The places of repute, the places of esteem. But he says there's richness to be found in the low places, actually. Just like that poor, wise man. He says there's princes to be found among the slaves. Believers must be reminded that the world is not what it seems. And the world must be told that true wisdom has the appearance of foolishness. And I don't mean stupidity. I just mean foolishness. Where they say, oh, that, that's not the right path. And you think of some of the things Jesus taught. Love your enemies. <laughs> that's foolish. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. You know, that, uh, that's kind of silly. It's actually wise. It reminded me of a song that I'd be curious to see if anyone's heard it. There's an artist named Michael Card. Okay, amen. Thank you, Mark. I had my Michael Card stage. I had other stages too. There was a song that Michael Card sang that I thought it's just powerful. And it's always stuck with me. It's called God's Own Fool. And I'll read it to you. And Fisher, if you could put the text up there, because I think it's in there. Here are the lyrics. It says, Seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. For even his family said he was mad. And the priest said, A demon's to blame. But God in the form of this angry young man could not have seemed perfectly sane. He says, we in our foolishness thought we were wise. He played the fool and He opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, He became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable, come be a fool as well. So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream, and you'll have the faith his first followers had, and you'll feel the weight of the beam. So surrender the hunger to say you must know, and have the courage to say, I believe, for the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. What a Christian invitation. Come be a fool for Christ. Come be a fool with Christ. It's much less than the invitation Christ gives us which says come die that you might live. Getting God's wisdom. Becoming wise. If you were to ask the world, what, what do I got to do to be wise? I imagine they would probably say, well, as you get older, 
uh, you have great experiences, and that makes you wise. As you suffer, that makes you wise. Education makes you wise. I would argue all of those things certainly help you, but getting wise like Christ most likely means becoming much more foolish than you are now. This is not a matter of seeking authoritative knowledge from someone or having authoritative experience to say, well, I've had this experience and therefore I now know. I would argue actually it's a matter of surrendering authority. Solomon teaches in the Proverbs, which I'm sure you've heard, that wisdom begins with fear of God. Did you know that whatever we fear most, we actually love most? At least it's revealed in what we fear most. And whatever we love most is what governs our lives. Most are governed by their emotions. Most or others are governed by their intellects or their experiences. Those are kind of the big three. Let me govern by what I feel, be governed by what I think, or governed by what I've learned from experience. But I think it's noteworthy that Jesus calls us to a different kind of love. Perhaps you're familiar with Mark chapter 12 where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and your mind and strength. Love God with those things. Those things are put underneath the Lord. How do you become wise? Well, we submit our heart. Call them our emotions. Those things that, those feelings that come up, right? That you don't control. When you say, I feel X, I can't go, that's wrong. But what do you do with those feelings? Because as you read Scripture, as you come to, to God's wisdom, guess what? Your feelings are confronted. And what happens? You go, ooh, ah. I don't know if I like that. What wins? Your feelings are God's truth. The same goes with your mind, right? He says, love the Lord with your mind. Well, what about when my intellect is confounded by God's truth? What do I do? What wins? Or my experiences. My experiences of suffering, my experiences of, of, of relationships, my experiences just in the world as, as even those who are saying they're believers start going the very opposite of what God's Word says. You go, what do I do with that? I love this person and I don't know what's going to win. God's truth or your experience. You have to decide what your authority is going to be. And it will be an authority that leads you to wisdom or an authority that leads you to foolishness. This is not to suggest that feelings or intellects or experiences don't have a role in shaping us. Because these things certainly are not like some quiet, poor man of wisdom. Our feelings are loud. Right? Our opinions are strong. Our experiences are attractive. But they are horrible authorities. And placing yourself under the authority of any one of those things leads to emptiness. It doesn't mean they don't have a role in your life, but it means that is how I determine what is true, how I feel about it. 
This is what I determine what is true. What I think about it or my experiences, that will lead to emptiness. When your feelings or your opinions or your experiences come in conflict with God's truth, the wise submit to God. Submission to the authority of God's Word despite what we feel or think or experience is the path of wisdom. But it's also the path to look like a fool in this world. To be rejected by this world. To be killed and persecuted by this world. We will become wise when God and His Word becomes who and what we go to first and last before we speak or act. Do you hear that? We become wise when God and His Word becomes who and what we go to first and last before we speak or act. Some believe it's only through age and experience that we become wise. But you know what the Bible says? You don't have to wait until you're old or you're experienced or you're educated to be wise. Because wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Man or woman, young or old, rich or poor, God freely gives wisdom to the educated, to the old, to the male. No. To anyone who asks. This is what James 1.5 tells us. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. What does that mean? I don't know what to do. Let me ask. God doesn't go, oh, so, you want to talk now that you don't know what to do. Interesting. It's been a few years since I've heard from you. Right? That's not how God works. He gives to you generously without reproach. He is a perfect father, unlike an imperfect father that when your sons or daughters come and they've been doing their own thing and you're like, yeah, that's unwise. And then they come to you like, mm-hmm. So, told you so. Right? Now I'll tell you what I told you before. Like, that's not how it works. He delights in seeing you come. He delights in hearing. He delights in telling you the truth. And you don't have to wait because guess what? He's given it to us. You begin to look at the Scriptures as, as the wisdom of a father who wants his best for you. Not as the rules to follow so you somehow can be approved. You're already approved in Christ. So wisdom isn't found in secret knowledge. Wisdom isn't found by finding some guru atop a mountain. Wisdom is not found on the internet. It's found in relationship with God. And we have relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. You cannot be wise apart from relationship with Christ. Period. God has revealed the fullness of His wisdom through His Son, Jesus, the One who self-describes as the way and the truth and the life. What way do I go? Jesus. What is the truth? Jesus. How do I have a satisfying, meaningful life? Jesus. 
We trust in His work on the cross. We put faith in His resurrection. And we obey His commands because He promises. I I, I tell you these things not because I'm some cosmic killjoy trying to make your life hard. John 15 says, I'm commanding these things, calling you to abide in Me so that your joy will be full. So you'll be joyful. So, along with me, And I say that as saying I call to you and charge this to you as much as I do to myself. Stop pretending you're smart, that you're strong, that you're intuitive, that you're experienced. We are foolish and we are weak and we need help. And the line that I appreciate that Michael Card sings is that when we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. God's wisdom is foolish to men because it's the opposite of what the world calls us to. This is what the cross shows us. And I get this from an old prayer. We'll close with this. This is the foolishness I'm talking about. And each of these could have their own sermon. But if you just think about the cross, because sometimes we think of the Gospel as like, well, that's just the facts that I check off and believe and then I am, you know, go on to Christian things. No, this is the Christian thing. The Gospel shapes us. It governs our decisions. It governs our attitude. It governs our perceptions. It is to govern everything. And this is the wisdom that the cross shows us. And I believe this is on there, Fisher, if you could put it up. That the way up is the way down. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross with Christ is to bear the crown. That to give is to receive. That's foolishness. But that's Christ. And that's the call of every Christian. We don't go out into the world and say, hey, we've been restored in Christ because we're super strong and awesome. We go out in the world and say, Jesus has done something to fix what I broke, what we broke. And He's not calling you to say you are strong and fit to be in His kingdom but to acknowledge that you're not and that you need a Savior and to live in such a way like our Savior, like that, that it's completely opposite to the world. That the world goes, (laughs) what a foolish way to live until by God's grace they say, that's God's wisdom. Which I pray we see more and more quote, wise people becoming fools for Christ. Amen. Let's pray.